Well, hey, good evening, everybody. How are we doing tonight? Good. Hey, I hope you guys have enjoyed um, these Bible Project videos. We've shown one every week um, for the last, um, I, I, think we've made, I think we've done all summer. So um, they have tons and tons of videos on their website, on YouTube, all that kind of thing. Really great tools, book overviews, all kinds of really awesome things. And we've just highlighted certain ones that fit into the themes of what we have been studying on Wednesday nights. Let's pray, and then we're going to jump into our final study tonight of more than just a book. Let's pray. Father God, uh, thank you so much uh, for being such a good God to us, for giving us your word and all the instruction, all the hope, um, all the equipping that we need um, that you've provided for us in your word, Lord, through your spirit, and we are so grateful. Uh, we come here tonight thankful. We come here eager to learn, to learn more about you, about, about um, how you are working through history, how you are unfolding your plan of salvation, how we are a part of that, and Lord, how your word speaks into that and equips us to live lives pleasing and holy to you that make a difference in this world and give glory to your name. So Lord, as we just open up tonight, uh, I just pray that my words are your words and that all of our ears are open, our hearts are soft to receive uh, what you have to speak to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So what I want to do is give us all a quick recap of where we've been all summer long. So we started more than just a book uh, way back in June. And the first six weeks what we did is we looked at the big picture stuff of the Bible, uh, about Bible reading, about Bible study. We talked about the grand narrative. Every week we've talked about the grand narrative, meaning this is that the Bible is all one story. It's all one story. It's not disjointed stories thrown in here and there over thousands of years, but it's one story. It's God's story of redemption is what it is. And in this story, we talked a lot about who the main character is, right? The main character is God. The main character is Jesus. It's not us. So when we read the Bible, we need to make sure that we read it always with Jesus as the hero of the story, okay? That's really important. We talked about timelines. We talked about authors, themes, styles. We did Old Testament survey. We did New Testament survey. Um, I mean, we had a really great time those first six weeks. Um, if you're jotting some notes down, um, we, we gave you guys in that first uh, six weeks a few book recommendations that we were using for a lot of our teaching content. So uh, one book is called Multiply. If you want to jot down Multiply, Francis Chan is one of the authors of that. Uh, we used another book called 30 Days to Understanding the Bible. Okay, 30 Days to Understanding the Bible. And the third book we used a lot that first six weeks was called Journey into God's Word. Journey into God's Word. So really great books. We would recommend those. Um, we also greatly emphasize the need to have a really good study Bible. Um, and it was really, I was really blessed because a number of you spoke to me, I know, the first couple weeks after that. And you're like, 
I ordered a new study Bible. I'm so excited. Amazon delivered it today. It's a great day. It's like Christmas, right? Um, so that's really neat. So a uh, really good study Bible really helps you to dig deep and mine out every treasure that exists in the Word of God. So that was the first six weeks. Now, weeks 7 through 13, what we did we looked at specific books from the main sections of the Bible, and then we applied to those books our Bible study tools that we learned the first six weeks. That's what we've done. So there are seven main sections in the Bible. The first one is the Torah, or the law, the first five books, and we looked at the book of Deuteronomy that night. We did a big overview of Deuteronomy. Then we looked in the prophets, and we chose Jonah as our book. Uh, the third week, uh, we looked at the wisdom literature, and we looked at Proverbs, and that, comply, uh, that comprised the first, uh, the, the Old Testament, those, those three sections. The New Testament has four sections, so we looked at the Gospel of Mark, when we talked about the Gospels. Then we looked at New Testament history, which was the book of Acts. Last week, uh, we looked at the book of Galatians, I mean, not Galatians, of Colossians, uh, as a sample of New Testament letters, and tonight... We're looking at New Testament prophecy at Revelation. You guys excited about Revelation tonight? That's because you're down there and I'm up here. This is a big book to (laughs) to unpack. It is going to be fun, though. But I do want to say this. Um, You know, it is the prayer of the elders of the church. It is the prayer of the pastors. It's the prayer of the teaching team uh, that you love God's Word, that you love God's Word, and that you can read it and you can understand it rightly so you can live more fully in him and live more fully for him. Um, let me read to you 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. It says, but as for you, Paul's writing this to Timothy, and there's things we can glean from this for sure, principles. But as for you, continue in what you have learned, And have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Some good works? No. How many good works? Every good work. So you, you think about as we open in this book and we study this book and we read this book and we learn how to understand this book and apply this book, it makes our belief firm, firm belief. It helps us to be wise for salvation, found only in Jesus Christ. It is profitable for us in every way. It makes us complete and equipped for every good work. This, my friends, is the greatest treasure that we have, isn't it? It is. So, you know, and just, you know, personally, I'll tell you what. It is, it's been an honor to help teach you guys alongside Pastor Mark and Dan and Paul and John, and it's just been so fun to kind of take this journey with you. I have a lot of fun, I'll tell you, up here um, with worship, and I'm on, you know, helping Dan with music, and 
in the band, but it is my great joy to teach the Bible. So um, it's a pleasure to do this with you. Um, I don't know why I'm crying now. So let's just get into Revelation. Goodness gracious. <laughs> okay, if you have a Bible, open it. It's the very last book, all right? Um, if you have a digital device with a Bible on it, you can do that too. If you don't have either, there's probably a lost and found. You can take a Bible out of there, um, or you can look up on the screen. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. That's me right now. And blessed are those who hear. Everyone say, that's us. That's us. Woo! And who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Amen to that. So let's jump into this. Let's jump into this. So the traditional title of this letter is the Revelation of John, or the Revelation to John. Um, we just call it Revelation typically. Now in Greek, the word that we translate Revelation is actually the Greek word where we get the word apocalypse from. Apocalypse and Revelation are really synonymous. What it means is apocalypse means, Revelation means the disclosure or unveiling. Okay? So it's basically the unveiling of unseen heavenly or future realities. The unveiling of heavenly or unseen uh, future realities. Now, we often pray for revelation, don't we? And that's a good thing. Uh, we want God to reveal or unveil truth about him and his word that transforms our lives and our understanding and brings us into a deeper relationship with Jesus. That's what we pray for. I think it's funny, we don't pray for apocalypse from God. Now, it means the same thing, but we've kind of taken it like, oh, we pray for apocalypse, we're praying for the end of the world, and we don't want to do that. So, but it's just kind of interesting how words are, isn't it? So, but revelation means unveiling, okay? Unveiling or disclosure. Let's kind of go into our nuts and bolts. Let's talk about some things of context and that sort of thing. Now, revelation was written around 95 to 96 A.D. It was written by the Apostle John, also known as the Beloved Disciple. And he was exiled at this point of his life, he was an old man by now, to the Greek island of Patmos, um, which is kind of off the coast of modern-day Turkey, kind of where we're at. Now, there's been a couple times in this series that we've made a, kind of a bigger deal about when a book is written because it really speaks into a specific time, and the dating of Revelation is actually very important. So I want to take a couple minutes to talk about that. Um, there are many schools of thought in how to read and interpret Revelation, and how you date it is part of that, okay? So let's kind of do a little timeline here. All right. I promise there's not going to be any more charts and graphs of millennial kingdom stuff, and we're not going to do that. But um, a little timeline here, some things you kind of need to be aware of. Okay, so we have the cross happening, like 33 A.D., right? 
That's kind of the traditional date as we date things, around 33 AD. And um, something very significant happened at 70 AD. Anybody know what happened in 70 AD? Yeah, yeah, Jerusalem was sacked and the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And that was done by who? The Romans. The Romans destroyed the temple, okay? They did that in response to a Jewish revolt that happened in 66 AD. Okay, so all these zealots, you you read the word zealots. Well, the zealots never went away. Okay, the zealots were still there fighting back against the Roman oppression. So they finally stirred up this huge, you know, revolt um, in around 66 AD. And then um, the Romans, under Emperor Nero, really bad guy, like nasty bad guy, um, he's the type of guy that would stick Christians on sticks and light them up as torches to light his roads at night. That's the type of guy Nero was. So he sent Rome in and just wiped out Jerusalem. Okay? Now we have a traditional date of Revelation. John is now exiled around 95 AD um, is when uh, the, the, the most common date is accepted for Revelation. So the reason I want to say this to you is one school of thought with Revelation is that the events that happened here, the destruction of the temple, you know, and the fall of Jerusalem because of the Romans, um, people read Revelation with that in mind, that John was writing about that, that Nero was the Antichrist and that sort of thing, which means that Revelation, one date is an early date, maybe somewhere around here in the late 50s or the early 60s, okay? Um, And People who take more of that view, they take a, what's called a preterist view of Revelation or a partial preterist view, meaning events that kind of happened already. So as we read things about these visions, Antichrist, it's kind of in reference to 70 AD. That's one school of thought. Now, as we do our history, though, and we read some early church fathers, such as Justin Martyr, uh, another early church father called Irenaeus. They lived in the early 2nd century, around, you know, the, the 120s to the 130s kind of time. And Irenaeus in particular, he even mentions in one of his writings that the Apostle John, when he wrote Revelation, said it was almost in our generation. Okay, so when we look at things like that, and we even look at, if you really, really start digging deep into what's going on in the communities and the churches of Revelations 2 and 3, you know, those seven churches, um, it really gives us a good data, actually, that Revelation really was written in the mid-90s, which means as we read Revelation, we can read that not with a preterist view, but with a futurist view, that these still are mainly things to come. Are you tracking with me? This is why knowing your dates and kind of some context stuff is really important because it helps you read the Bible and understand it rightly. Now, um, I'm going to draw you a picture of something one of my Bible professors in college drew for me. So he talked about this thing called the prophetic cup. And I found this very, very helpful to me. He's like, you know, know, we can look at things in history and we can attach them to things that the Bible talks about, and they kind of end up, they, they, they go into it, and they fill the cup up, right? So it's empty, but it starts to fill up. 
So let's look at this whole idea of Antichrist, who is a character, a real character, and could be a real person, right, in the book of Revelation. But there are people that kind of represent the Antichrist all throughout history. You know, and then the Bible talks about that. The, the Bible talks about the spirit of the Antichrist is already in the world. Peter, Peter talks about that. And so when we look at people like Nero, uh, when we look at the next Roman emperor, they may, I think it might be two down, uh, Domitian, who actually is the one that exiled uh, John to Patmos, we look at these guys who were oppressors to Christianity. You look at guys like Stalin and Hitler, you know, in our kind of last hundred years or so, people like that, the, these are people that are sort of filling up this prophetic cup. But ultimately what's going to happen is, you know, you have like, I know I'm using the Antichrist as kind of like the illustration here, you have these little A Antichrists that do this, but soon we'll have the capital A Antichrist that the scripture talks about that is going to fill and overflow the cup. And, and, and prophecy is ultimately fulfilled. You following with me? Okay, good. I know this is kind of a lot of stuff, but it's really, really good. Now, I'm going to tell you, if you really want to be refreshed on the church's position of eschatology, can everyone say eschatology? Okay, that's the study of end times, eschatology. And if you want to be refreshed on all the fun pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-millennial, amillennial, end time fun stuff, okay, um, you can go back and you can uh, go to our website, and look up Pastor Mark's sermons that he did when we did the Doctrine series, because he spent a number of weeks looking at those things of where we stand. They were very memorable, because every time he preached on end times, we had like an apocalyptic storm outside. Remember? The dust storm and a huge rain. I mean, it was like, there was a storm, Mark's preaching on end times again. You know, I thought it was kind of funny myself. So, um, <laughs> anyway, that's kind of where we're at. So, that's the context. Where are we in the grand narrative? The grand narrative. What we get in Revelation is incredible because the last two chapters give us a vision of the new creation. We keep having all these, we're almost there, we're getting there, we're getting there. We're, not, we're in redemption right now. And we're seeing these first fruits of the new creation that started with Jesus' resurrected body. And is our, our salvation is part of that. And, but we see in the last two chapters of Revelation what it's going to look like. And it's majestic and seas of glass and, and just walking streets of gold and all, you know, the, the jewel, all that everywhere. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful sight. So that's what we see with the grand narrative. The literary style of Revelation is a prophetical narrative. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean this. John is not writing what he heard. He's not writing what he heard. John is writing what he saw, which is very different than any other prophetical book that we have. We have little glimpses. I mean, Ezekiel had the wheel within the wheel. He saw that, wrote that down. That's weird. You got these things spinning everywhere, right? I mean, you see these, these, these biblical authors, they get these grand visions, and they're trying to write down what they think it looks like, <laughs> right? And we're like, what does that mean? Um, but the thing with John is that everything he shows us is what he was shown. It wasn't, thus says the Lord, it's, the, it's, it's what was shown to him, okay? So John is more like a reporter. He's telling us what he saw, um, 
very much like we just like we saw the video with the hurricane, you know, with Convoy of Hope. Uh, and we see this in verse 2 of chapter 1. He says, uh, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So what we're reading is what John saw, which makes the prophetical narrative very unique in all of Scripture. The basic structure of Revelation, there's four parts to it. Chapter 1 is very clearly a prologue, like an introduction. Chapter 2 and 3 is Jesus' words to the church. And he spoke to seven specific churches. But as we're going to see in just a minute, he was speaking to all churches everywhere. Okay? Chapters 4 through 20 is the prophetical vision of the end times. And then chapters 21 and 22 is the culmination of all history and the eternal new creation. Sound good? All right. Let's jump into our themes, get a big grand picture of what Revelation is teaching us. And let's do it. All right. So our first theme. First theme in Revelation is this, is worship. Is worship. You thought I was going to say, oh, it's going to be end time prophecy vision stuff. I think a huge theme in Revelation is the theme of worship. Our modern word worship comes from the old English word of worth-ship. Worth-ship, attributing worth to something. So when we sing songs like worthy worthy we are proclaiming god's worth giving him worship revelation chapter 4 verse 11 says worthy are you our lord and god to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created worthy are you we are literally worshiping god when we give him worship, we are proclaiming the inherent worth that he has to receive all honor, all glory, and all praise. You cannot read Revelation without reading accounts of Jesus receiving worship. You can't. There are ten distinct proclamations and songs of worship throughout the book of Revelation. I'm reading through this book. I'm reading these, and I'll tell you what, song after song that we sing in church are just running through my head because they are inspired by the worship and revelation. Let me read one of them. Let's read one of them together. Revelation 19. Revelation 19. Gosh, I, look at, I have a song from my college years running through my head right now with, with this. I'm not going to sing it for you. Revelation 19, starting at verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God! All you servants, you who fear him, small and great. 
And that's just one of them in there. Tremendous songs of worship that we read. John, it's funny to me. It's funny to me. John gets so caught up in this a couple times. Now, remember, John actually had a, like a guide through this vision, okay? Um, he had an, this, this guy that was an angel that was guiding him through this. John gets so caught up in this worship and what he's seeing, you know, and he's in the presence of this awe-inspiring angel, you know, and that he's like, he falls down at the feet of this angel to worship the angel. He's just like, oh my gosh, I need to worship everywhere, right? And the angel says to him, like, this happened twice, says, you must not do that. The angel says to John, don't do that. Don't worship me. For I am a fellow servant of God with you. That's cool. That's cool. So worship is this huge theme through the book of Revelation. Read Revelation and worship Jesus. Our second theme is warnings and judgment. And I just turned that dial down, didn't I? So warnings and judgment is our second theme. You know, as awe-inspiring as Revelation is, it's also very sobering. We should read Revelation with, you know, some, really some, some uh, introspection of ourselves and how we're living because we see what God's doing. You know, churches are getting disciplined in Revelation. Sin is being judged. Jesus is no longer presented as this meek and gentle Savior with children on his lap and flowing brown hair and a blue sash that we see in these pictures, right? Okay? It's not hippie Jesus anymore that we see in the book of Revelation. Jesus is now presented as a warrior. He's presented as a warrior riding a white horse into battle. He's a warrior king with crowns on his head. He has fire in his eyes. He has a sword coming out of his mouth. His robe is stained with blood. He has a tattoo down his leg proclaiming that he is the king of kings and the lord of lords. This is the Jesus that we read about in Revelation. A very different Jesus. The same Jesus, but we are now seeing him as this warrior, savior, king. Revelation 19, 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. With, this is what he's going to do with it. With which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. That's a Jesus you're not going to mess with. No one's going to mess with. So when we read in Philippians, when Paul says one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, this is the guy they're looking at. There is no escape in this Jesus. And judgment's coming with him. So where do you stand? With him or against him? So this warrior 
King, Savior Jesus, gives us clear warnings to live in line with the truth of who he is. And this is what we see in chapters 2 and 3 when he speaks directly to seven churches. So let's kind of over, you know, overview these churches real quick. To all seven churches, all these churches are real places, they were real churches and real cities, and they're all located in the current country of Turkey. Do you realize that Turkey has the most biblical like sites in and outside of Israel? I, 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 I'm, I would love to go to Turkey one day and just visit all these sites. So these, these are all happening in the current country of Turkey. He says to all these churches, he says, I know. He says, I know your works. I know where you dwell. I know your tribulation. He's saying, I know what's going on with you. I know what you're experiencing. Jesus pays attention to his churches. He pays attention to this church. Because this church is his. Remember what he said in Matthew 16, 18. He says to Peter, I will build my church. This church, the church, is his church. And he pays attention to his churches. He knows what goes on. And this is both encouraging to us because he loves us. He cares for us, right? He's a good king. He's a good, good God. But it's sobering too. To three churches, he said, uh, he, he encouraged them a little bit, and then he says to three churches, but I have this against you. He says that to Ephesus, Pergamum, and Thyatira. But I have this against you. To two churches, he strongly challenges them to repent. He doesn't really say great things about them. He doesn't really, really say really bad things about them, but he strongly encourages them to repent. He says that to the church at Philadelphia and the church at Laodicea. One church has nothing positive said about it. Nothing. Jesus says, you think you're alive, but you're dead. He says that to Sardis. I don't want to go to church in Sardis. And then to one church is given a positive, encouraging word. That's the church at Smyrna. Jesus pays attention to his churches. To all of his churches, he says this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Raise your hand if you have an ear. Okay, can you hear? Great, this is for you too. This is for us. It's not just for Ephesus and Pergamum and Thyatira and Philadelphia and Laodicea and Sardis and Smyrna. It's for Springfield. It's for Calvary. So these warnings, warnings were not just for these particular churches, but for all churches everywhere over all time. This is for us. So the warnings and the judgments that we read in Revelation, we need to read with a, with a very sober attitude. Okay? How can we as a church, where do we fall in this? How do we need to better honor the Lord? Where do we as a church need to repent so we can keep pushing forward and giving him all glory that he's due? Amen? Third theme is God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. All of history is God's story of redemption. That's what the grand narrative is about. And this speaks to God's sovereignty. We clearly see that God is God of the past, of the present, 
and the future. He is the one who was, the one who is, the one who is to come. He is the beginning and he is the end. He is the alpha, he is the omega. He's the A to Z. He's everything, everywhere, at all time. That's who God is. Revelation 1.8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. We could say he is the A and Z because Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter in the Greek alphabet. He is the A to Z. He is the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was, who is to come, the Almighty. This reflects when God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush back in Exodus chapter 3. Moses asks, after he argued with God for a little bit, which never is going to work, Moses asks, asks, who should I say sent me? Well, you want me to go back to the Hebrews? You want me to go before Pharaoh? And they're going to say, well, who sent you? What authority do you have? And God responds with the name Yahweh. Now, he didn't say Yahweh. This is what he said. He says, I am who I am. That was his response. Say, this is who sent you. I am who I am. What does that mean? It means this. It means he is the self-existent one. He is the never-changing one. The one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when we read Yahweh, when we read I am that I am in Exodus chapter 3, and we read in Revelation 1.8 like we just did of being the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was and the one who is and the one who is to come, we know we're talking about the same God over all of the Bible. That's who we're talking about. This, ref- this, uh, this really... I mean, if this doesn't give you a big picture of God, I don't know what's gonna. I don't know what's gonna. Now, let me, let me talk about sovereignty just for another second, okay, and dispel some myths about sovereignty. Because I think we hear that word and we like it on one hand and it kind of freaks us out on the other hand, right? Because it maybe has some implications that we don't like. Like, how much control does he really have over my life? So, this is what I'm going to tell you. I want to encourage you with this. Sovereignty does, sovereignty does not mean that God micromanages your life. That's not what sovereignty means. Um, you, you, need to think in, you need to think of sovereignty in terms of three things. A king, a kingdom, and subjects. That's how you need to think of sovereignty. So, if we have a king, okay, so we have a king and he has crown, there's some jewels in his crown. Okay, we have this king, right? And the king is over a what? He's over a kingdom. I don't care what you think of now. King Arthur or whatever. He's a king over a kingdom. Okay? Now, within that kingdom, there live who? Subjects. There's people, right? We got, you know, moms and dads. We got kids. We got farmers. We got knights. You know, we got, we got people everywhere. Okay? God is king. God has a kingdom, and there are subjects within his kingdom. Now, within the kingdom, are these subjects free to do what they want? 
Can they make their daily decisions of when they're going to wake up and how they're going to earn money and all that kind of stuff? What they choose to do with their time? Yeah. There's freedom within the kingdom. Now, but there's a king of the kingdom, and that king has laws. And we're talking about a good king, right? We're talking about a perfect, holy king. And so his laws are good and holy and designed to give his subjects full life, right? John 10, 10 stuff, right? So when the subjects don't live in accordance to the, king, to the king's rules, is the king good and just to discipline his subjects? Of course he is. Of course he is. I mean, we, we, we read that in Revelation 19, didn't we? Because it says in verse 2 of chapter 19, for his judgments are true and just. He's making judgments. And they're just. They're good, ju- they're good judgments. So I hope this is helpful for you because I think sometimes we hear sovereignty and some people interpret sovereignty like this really kind of crazy type of control. We're like, we're like robots. That's not the picture that we have. We have much freedom, but if we don't live by the king's rules, then everyone's subject to discipline. And the first rule of the king is recognize that he's king so you can enjoy all the fruit of the kingdom, right? That's how it works. So God's sovereignty is on full display throughout Revelation. That's what he's unfolding. It goes back to it's being his story, okay? The last theme that we have in the book of Revelation is hope. Is hope. Now, now let me just remind you, you know, we're, we are not, we, we spent a lot of time, like I mentioned, um, we went through our doctrine series about all like positions and that sort of thing. And so that's not what this night was for. This night is to give you big pictures of what this book is about. And this theme of hope is key to understanding any type of apocalyptic writing you know, prophecies that we read, whether it's there's Old Testament prophecy we read in like Daniel, right? Or we're reading Revelation. Hope is a huge theme throughout it all. And this is why we read in these prophetical books about how God is going to make everything right. And most often, these prophetical books are written during times of great distress and great persecution and struggle of the church, of God's people. A time when hope is thin, right? So what the book of Revelation tells us is that the world won't stay like this. That's what the book of Revelation tells us. No matter how hard things are, no matter how strong sin is, no matter when we see news reports of hurricanes coming in and wiping out communities, tornadoes leveling towns, and we see all this death and destruction, and we're like, how can things get any worse? No matter those things, what we learn by reading Revelation is this. God is making and will make everything right. That's what he will do. This is a key feature, like I said, in any apocalyptic writing. You see, revelation ultimately is a message of hope to you and to me.
here's what I want to do. I just want to read some passages that's going to give you some hope and going to give you a picture of how God is in control, how he is sovereign, and how he's going to work it all out. You know, and, and how sin, Satan, death, hell will be defeated for once and for all. And we get to live and to reign alongside King Jesus forever and ever because he's our king and we're his kids. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Here's your hope. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Every tear. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. He will right every wrong. Revelation 22, verse 6. He said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. Trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Do we pray for it to be soon? Yes, we do. And then the last two verses of the book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's say that. Come, Lord 
Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. The Bible, the book of Revelation, this is hope because of our good God. This is our gift to make us wise to salvation and equip us for every good work. And I guess the thing I just want to say lastly to you as we wrap this series up and we move the um, Built to Last series going through the Sermon on the Mountains, moving to Wednesday nights next week, the last thing I want to encourage you with, because I know there's times, because I feel them too, that God seems a little far off and you're not hearing his voice to speak to you and lead you and encourage you. You guys, anyone feel that way sometimes? It's not hearing from God. Here's what, here's what I hope you have gleaned this summer. That you can open this book and you can read this book. And I encourage you to read this book out loud because this is God's word. And as we read it, we hear him speak to us. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, man, you are so good. Thank you for giving us this great treasure of your word. And Lord, specifically as we looked at uh, Revelation tonight and all that you are unfolding, Lord, I pray that our faith in you is firm and strong. Lord, that we see you as a good king, warrior, who will right every wrong. We trust you with that, Lord. Thank you for, for the gift of worship that we can read and we can participate in because you are worthy. Thank you for judging rightly and being just. Thank you for being our sovereign Lord. And Lord, thank you for giving us hope that you are going to do what you say you're going to do, that you are trustworthy and true, and every one of your words will come to pass. So thank you, we worship and we praise you. And help us now to live lives that are equipped for you, to give you glory, and to bring good, to bring your truth of the gospel to those around us, to this world, who so desperately need it. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. And everybody said, amen. 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 God bless you guys. See you next week.